Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slow burn. Hope to see you there. It's Opinion Palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. It was the world's least surprising victory. What a turnout, what a crowd. And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Donald Trump swept Iowa's Republican caucus, netting more than 50 percent of the vote and doubling the number of voters he got eight years ago. It was a historic win, one built on the back of one particular group. First, let's just look at where Trump's lead comes from, evangelicals. Entrance polling from last night shows that 55% of the respondents were white evangelical Christians, and 53% of them voted for Trump. Back in 2016, a fifth of Trump's Iowa supporters were evangelicals. This week, they made up more than half of his voters. Some of you might find that surprising. God puts people over us in office, and... Um, I believe God put Donald Trump there, and I want him back in again. Donald Trump, the man, has never seemed a particularly natural match for evangelicals when it comes to lifestyle and character. How do people of faith who follow the Bible reconcile that disconnect? Well, you say people of faith who follow the Bible, and I think the unfortunate thing is that in white American Christianity, we've we've gone pretty far afield from the Bible and specifically from the teachings of Jesus. Reverend Angela Danker is the author of Red State Christians. She also led a Lutheran congregation in rural Minnesota up until a year ago. White conservative Christians really began to coalesce around social issues, somewhat as a backlash to some of the gains made in the 1960s and 70s for Black Americans, for women. And so we find ourselves here now in 2024, 
with white Christians being really most concerned about a naked grab for power and have decided to hitch their wagons to the person who they see as wielding the most authoritative power. In 2016, white evangelicals seemed skeptical of Trump. Ted Cruz actually won the Iowa caucus. One in three evangelicals voted for him. But now is 2024. And Angela says the ones who are still with him are doubling down. So I had, you know, people in my own congregation, a lot of rural people who really have absolutely nothing in common with somebody like Donald Trump. They were starting to peel away and and even some of them would say, you know, dang it, I voted for this guy twice and now I'm kind of feeling embarrassed. But this core, this intense core is only getting stronger. I just think it's it, it continues to get more and more intense. The intensity of the support for Trump is scary, and it is reminiscent of a religious devotion, and it is reminiscent of authoritarian figures of the past and present. Today on the show, why white evangelicals gave Donald Trump their blessing. I'm Mary C. Curtis, and for Mary Harris, you're listening to What Next? Stick around. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you're driving, cooking, or doing laundry, Progressive knows the podcasts you listen to go best when they're bundled with another activity. Much like how their Progressive home and auto policies go best when they're bundled. Having these two policies together makes taking care of your insurance easier. And it could help you save, too. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. That's a whole lot of savings and protection for your favorite podcast listening activities, like going on a road trip, cooking dinner, or even hitting the home gym. Yep, your home and your car are even easier to protect when you bundle your insurance together. Find your perfect combo. Get a home and car insurance quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Do you consider yourself an evangelical? You know, I probably, when it comes to American evangelicalism, folks would say I was never an evangelical because it's become such a political and social term. I'm in this weird sort of quandary where I am ordained by a a denominational body that's called the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And this word evangelical comes from the proclamation of the gospel, which is hugely important to me as a pastor and a preacher. Uh, So in that sense, I I never want to give up the term, but it has really been poisoned at this point. Can you talk uh, somewhat about your relationship with the evangelical community? Well, 
a lot of times the first commentary I'll get from people is that I should not even be speaking as a pastor because I am a woman. So that is still a predominant impression out there in Christianity. Um, and even you'll see, you know, trends sort of on, on Instagram right now. And even in some of like the mom parenting communities that I'm in, there's really this push towards something called trad wives. There's this push towards Christian women need to be in the home. So some of that, I'll just say, has made it at times a tough relationship for me. At the same time, you know, I was a kid of the 90s. I was very much reared and raised in purity culture. And I was really drawn to evangelicalism as a teenager, as a young adult. And I started my career as a pastor in very large congregations that, while they may have been Lutheran in name, functioned much more like evangelical churches. So this is a culture that I know well. It's a culture that's part of my family, people that I love. And that's, I think, for so many of us who are reporting on these trends, who for whom it's also part of our family, it's part of our community and our history. It's really, really heartbreaking and sad. And there's this work of putting the pieces back together of our own faith. And how do we navigate the world when this label Christianity has so much negative cultural baggage attached to it now that has nothing to do with Jesus? You've been very specific about you know, saying white evangelicals, but of course, there are many black evangelicals who would claim that term and say, well, okay, I don't want you to define it. So could you talk a little bit about the relationship between white and black evangelicals? Is, is their mission and message just different? It is. And, you know, as someone who has been reporting on Christian nationalism, Often when we will critique the role of prominent pastors or politicians who are appearing at large evangelical megachurches, folks will point to that and say, but but look, Biden was at that black church and you've got senators, black senators from Georgia, Senator Warnock, who are pastors. You know, why is there this double standard? And I would say as someone who has been really inspired by the Black church and specifically by the Black pastors who led the civil rights movement, I would say that it is two different boxes. Black evangelical Christianity has often existed in America as a resistance movement. A couple of months ago, I was at Mother Emanuel Church doing some reporting for a book that I'm working on, and I noticed that they had an American flag in the front of the sanctuary. And, you know, in many white evangelical churches, that flag is like a pain to Christian nationalism. It's this sense of mightiness that, yes, we are in power, we are in control, and we are claiming this nation for ourselves. So I asked the church historian at Mother Emanuel, I said, tell me about the American flag, that what, what that means to you all as a congregation. And he told me that that flag represented to them in Charleston, South Carolina, which is the birthplace of the Confederacy, the birthplace of the place in the South that wanted to fight to keep Black Americans enslaved. He said that that American flag for them represented a symbol to say, we too are Americans. It's a resistance still to those ideas of the Confederacy, which in some ways are still alive and well in much of America. And so I think it has to be understood sometimes as a movement of resistance that's been pushing for freedom and liberation rather than power and control over others. Well, you've talked about your congregation. For the past several years, you've been ministering to a rural community of mostly Trump voters. Yes. How was that experience? 
Oh my goodness. You know, I, I, I left that congregation about a year ago and I'm still grieving and, and missing them. And I know, you know, that that feeling is mutual. Um, and it wasn't easy all the time, you know, in some ways I felt like I was living in two very different worlds. I was living in a neighborhood of Minneapolis and driving out through the farm fields to a rural town in Minnesota. We changed each other, that experience of living together. And I think that's why we really need to lean into those those leaders who are already there, these small town church leaders, teachers, coaches, all around America, people who have influence and trust need to be speaking up powerfully against this movement, especially as committed white Christians. I, I had a sermon that I preached after January 6th that a couple of families did leave the church. I mean, I think it, that wasn't the only reason, but it was certainly part of it. You say that some left after January 6th, so I'm assuming they approved. How, how do you reconcile this tension? I'm working on it, Mary. <laughs> I'm working on it each and every day. I had some folks say to me that they they were feeling regretful of their vote in 2020. And in that moment, I was thinking, gosh, you know, 2016, maybe I can understand, but 2020 again, after all we've been through, through 2016 to 2020, I mean, it's still... It wasn't easy. And I also, you know, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I did have folks in that congregation, too, who were not politically conservative and living in rural America and working to change minds and bring a broader perspective and bring a different family. And I did have people, you know, one of the leaders in my congregation was serving on a township board, and he talked to me about how this group of militia movements was coming into rural township meetings and bringing in ideas of violent overthrows, and he stood up and spoke against it. Um, He stood up and spoke against when people were using racial slurs in township meetings. Um, So I think, again, there are people of courage speaking out, and I do want to lift, lift up those folks because it is not easy. I certainly experienced that sense of fear and intimidation sometimes in places like white Christian rural America that had once really felt like my home, that I would never feel afraid or intimidated, but I didn't feel those feelings. Last week, a report in the New York Times implied that Trump-supporting evangelicals are much more likely to see their faith as a political identity rather than a religious one, to the point where some of them don't even go to church. Denker doesn't buy that. You know, I think it's it's always a hope that that people will have um, American Christian, white American Christians have that. Well, you know, these folks that are really into this, they're they're not really going to church. But I think the the reality is that many of our large churches have become agents of radicalization, and many large church pastors, evangelical pastors, in particular they've gotten rich off this movement. They've gotten rich off, you know, kind of emulating Trump in the way that he is just a consummate salesman. In some ways, the mask has dropped for a lot of pastors and leaders, and they're no longer even paying so much lip service to like being Bible-based or to even some of the social teachings that have been hallmarks of Christianity. And instead, they're just really nakedly talking about the culture wars and really nakedly promoting themselves. We'll be back after a short break.
You're listening to What Next? I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. Polling has always shown a pretty strong link between white conservative evangelicals and support for Donald Trump. In 2016, it was 81%. In 2020, it grew to 86%. What's less clear, though, is what percentage of this block identifies with Christian nationalism? I asked Reverend Denker how we should think about that term. I do have a definition that I came up with, and I try to, you know, stick to that definition. My way that I define it is really tied to theology and how people understand God. Um, So I say Christian nationalism is a version of the idolatrous theology of glory, which replaces the genuine worship of God with worship of a particular vision of America, often rooted in a revisionist history of white people in the 1950s, before the civil rights movement or the women's movement. Christian nationalism supports a violent takeover of government and the imposition of fundamentalist Christian beliefs on all people. So that's their view for America. What is Trump's relationship with Christian nationalism? How are these two forces working with each other and to what end? Power, wealth, security. It's it's power over. You know, one thing that has, has always deeply troubled me is this attraction of poor white people, poor white Christians, blue collar voters, however you want to say it, to Trump. And a lot of these folks are very hardworking folks. They have integrity. They have a strong work ethic. They have a sense of sacrifice for others. And so I think Trump is certainly playing to insecurities. He's playing to um, fears and he is promising a security and he's promising, well, you're going to be above, you know, especially like his railing against immigrants. Again, it's it's appealing to a sense, well, you might not be that great off, but you're, you're better than them. And it, it's really, really ugly and hard to talk about, but it is the case. So we've established that the electorate is pretty far apart politically. And now we have religion closely tied into a far right identity, at least a certain religion. How do you see this working out? De-escalating or not? Uh, Is there any reason for hope at all? (laughs) Well, for me, when I'm thinking about hope, um, I do have to really cling to the, the belief in theology of the cross. God did God's most powerful work when God died. And that in these moments that look very bleak and hopeless, there is reason to look outside ourselves. I mean, such <laughs> important work for Christians. Look outside ourselves, look outside our own churches. I think that's my call to a lot of churches that maybe haven't been radicalized or pastors that haven't been radicalized, but have been quiet, you know, that white moderate, that there is a call at this moment to look to what God is saying outside of us. And how are we being called to speak truth and justice in the midst of this movement. So I do, I mean, I see hope when I think about the folks that I worked with in my rural congregation, when I see these small town pastors who I work with often and just their courage, their bravery and their commitment to continue to stay rooted in communities where they are in a political minority and yet they're continuing to speak and to try and act differently. And those things do give me hope, but I do think we cannot underestimate the challenge ahead. So you say there is that elusive, moderate, reasonable voice, but they just may not have been speaking <laughs> up. 
no, no, they have not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the presidential nomination contest is getting underway. Uh, what are you going to be looking for in the weeks and months to come? You know, I'm going to really, I'm going to be watching uh, the messaging coming from the Democrats. And I'm going to be watching the messaging um, coming from President Biden and Vice President Harris. And what I tend to see, and even I see this among more progressive Christians as well, there's a tendency to sort of run scared in some senses. And there's a tendency to just think, well, this other movement is so intense and overwhelming. And sometimes I think the news media sort of plays into that because it we'll see again and again, the New York Times, these stories of the most extreme fringes of this white Christian movement. And we won't hear the stories of the folks that are battling against it quite as strongly. So I'm going to be looking for Democrats and for progressives to cast their own message, not only as a response to whatever Republicans or conservatives are doing, but to really own the mantle of what is their vision for America? What is the positive hope for America? I mean, President Obama did that brilliantly. And I think that even as this this movement of Trumpism is overwhelming and scary and rooted in the communities and the folks that I have spent most of my life with, at the same time, it's a minority movement. Trump's ceiling has been a pretty hard 33, 36%. That's a, that's a huge portion of Americans, but it's definitely not a majority and it's still not a majority. And so I think Americans who are in that majority need to be a little bit more confident and say, no, we have a vision for America. We have a vision of what this country can be and is. And we're going to talk about that vision and not only respond to the attacks from the other side. Thank you, Reverend Angela Danker, for coming on What Next? Thank you so much. Angela Danker is a Lutheran pastor in Minneapolis and the author of Red State Christians. She's working on a new book about young white Christian men and boys and the rise of radicalization. You can subscribe to Angela's writing on Substack at I'm listening, angeladanker.substack.com. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.